We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll be starting in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works? For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, deceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Good morning. For uh, anyone I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you are visiting with us, For the first time, we do want to extend just our welcome to you. Hopefully, you've already received that from our members, uh, which I'm sure you have. And uh, just let me invite you after the service, if you would, uh, don't just sneak out. Please hang around for a little bit. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better in the lobby. Uh, We even have a gift over in our our Connect area. Uh, We'd love to kind of connect with you and get to know your story a little bit better. Uh, Emmaus members, I know uh, we often say this from the pulpit, but uh, it truly is a joy to be your pastor, uh, especially even in considering some of the implications of the text that we've seen throughout the series over 2 Corinthians and uh, what it looks like to faithfully um, walk as a body of Christ, uh, I just want to commend you all and thank you for your efforts to uh, comfort one another and uh, mutually encourage one another in Christ. And so just let me say thank you, and uh, I beg you to continue to do that. Uh, Anytime I get a chance to open up the Word of God, there's this... Uh, immense joy that comes with that and and also an immense weight so I would love to uh, begin with prayer and then we'll jump into the text so if you'd bow with me Father we lift high your name 
Lord, we ask that uh, in all that we do here this morning, whether it be our songs or our fellowship, uh, whether it be the word proclaimed, I pray that your name would be lifted high in this moment. Come before you in the name of Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. Lord, we just ask that the name of Christ would be magnified in this place this morning. Lord, we pray that for the men and women who have come and gathered here today, that Lord, their vision of Jesus would be increased. Lord, their joy in, in Christ would be heightened. Lord, the hunger to know him more would uh, only be fueled even greater. Lord, we pray that your spirit would just give us a supernatural ability to take your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we would be conformed more to your image as we uh, come into counter with your word today. Lord, I pray that uh, in everything we do, Lord, that you would just continue to grow. Um, grow this body of believers in holiness and love for each other and love for you, Lord. Lord we love you and it's your name I pray. Amen. So throughout the process of going through this letter to the Corinthian church, we've seen Paul exhibiting a great deal of patience and humility. Consider Paul who comes to the city of Corinth, which is known as one of the more wicked cities throughout the history of the world, a city where there was no, certainly no lack of ability to indulge in the pleasures and the things that this world has to offer. This is a city of the self-made man where those who were able to turn a phrase and who had a certain quality about them to draw crowds were those who would climb their way to the top. And these were the type of people who received greatest of honor among them. And yet here we see Paul comes to this city and, and he comes with no crafty arguments or no slick sounding skill of speech, but he comes and he proclaims the power of the gospel in plain language. In a miraculous form, we see this church arises in Corinth. And as the spiritual father of this church, Paul continues to display his love and affection for this people, and yet we see in return, rather than lauding in him as a respectable and, and praiseworthy figure, quite the opposite has happened. In fact, they've turned against him. Their skepticism towards his actions, even hostility towards his presence in their midst. See, these super apostles have walked into this church and they've begun to steer the hearts of these people away from the gospel and away from Paul. And Paul, in great humility and patience, has been writing to these brothers and sisters and corresponding with them and patiently answering their questions, addressing their fears, confronting the skepticism towards him. And we see that he's done so powerfully and methodically as he's addressed these issues, both intellectually and logically. Today we see as Paul is veering towards the conclusion of this letter, he has every intent that he's going to come and finally visit this church again. And Paul, having reasoned with them logically why they should be restored to him, is now turning to their hearts. Paul offers them this plea. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And in so doing, Paul is not simply asking them to like him. He's not saying, I want you to like me, so please do whatever it takes. But Paul is inviting them back into fellowship of the believers. He's inviting them to embrace the gospel that they once proclaimed. And so today we see Paul appeals to their hearts in this final push before he comes to visit them. 
And as we look through this text, we're going to see kind of three movements of this. Paul's going to conclude this boasting that he's been engaged in over the last few chapters. He's going to appeal to their hearts that they would restore the love that they once had for Christ and for him. And then finally, he's going to end by issuing a warning for those who choose not to. So let's go ahead and open up the text. Uh, Verse 11 through 13 is where we'll start. It says this, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me of this wrong. So we see Paul has been endeavoring really throughout the entirety of this letter, especially in the last 10 chapters, to address some of the concerns that the church has over his personhood. And he's gone on this lengthy kind of self-aggrandizement. He's gone on this lengthy resume in which he's listing out all the ways that he checks the boxes of an apostle. And Paul refers to this throughout the entirety of this process as foolishness. He wants this to become abundantly clear. The fact that he is sitting here trying to plead his case on why they should trust him is an act of folly. The fact that he is trying to hold himself up as someone that they should esteem and value is a foolish, foolish action. But as he stated before and he states here again, we see that this is not an empty endeavor. Paul is not simply trying to win the affection of these people by impressing them much in the same way that people within Corinth would have done at this time. In fact, he says the opposite is true. He says, this is foolish. But you forced my hand in this moment to do this. For I never should have had to point to my credentials of apostleship. I never should have had to reveal these superior revelations that I've received in order for you to trust me. But you should have known from my very presence that I was a true apostle. Paul states that these men who have snuck into their midst and have deceived them have not displayed the signs of a true apostle. And yet Paul, even though he is nothing, as he has been continuously pointing back to, not seeking to inflate him in front of them, but he's pointed to this reality that it was through his very nothingness that God has been working mightily in his life. If we were to look in the book of Acts and see the events that transpired in the city of Corinth, we can't point to necessarily any specific signs that are recorded in the text, but... We have seen throughout the book of Acts, Paul's life has been marked by the power of God being transported through his weakness. If we survey through the book, we see moments such as Acts 13, where a magician is challenging Paul and his message, and Paul's words cause the magician to go blind. He's walking around as one who can't see now. In Acts 14, Paul comes across a man who was born crippled and lame, And just by telling this man to stand up, we see this man begins to walk for the first time. In Acts 16, we see that there's this young lady who is a slave girl. She's been taken advantage of by these men because she has the power to predict the future because of this demon that's possessing her. As she's following Paul throughout the city, Paul commands the demon to leave, and we see the demon no longer resides in this young woman. In a true feat of miraculousness, we see in Acts 19 that Paul, even these garments that he's touched, uses a handkerchief and leaves it sitting around, maybe put an apron on while he was preparing dinner. People are finding these garments, taking them to the sick, and they're finding healing. 
So we see in all of this, Paul is not pointing to these realities and saying, look at me and the power that I possess, but he's saying, even though I am nothing, just an ordinary man, you've seen the power of God move through me. And friends, I would challenge you to say today that the greatest miracle these Corinthians have seen is in a city that loved their vices and their lust and their sin and their wickedness. Paul walks in and proclaims the gospel in power, and these men and women who are once residents of darkness have now become citizens of light. So we see Paul points to this, and he says, in no way was I inferior to these other apostles, and yet here I find myself having to try to earn your affection back. My motivations towards you have been pure, and yet I find myself trying to win your heart. And Paul asks bluntly, what is it that I have done that your affections have left me? Is it because I didn't take any money from you? Forgive me this wrong. We see Paul's apology here is somewhat sarcastic, and uh, I'll be honest with you, as I shared with the first service, uh, this was a little bit convicting to me because I have... Uh, adopted a pretty staunch policy against sarcasm. I feel like it is uh, a relatively useless form of communication, and yet we see even here in Scripture that even Christ can redeem sarcasm. So, so I will say that as a caveat, but I think it's important that we notice Paul's posture here. Paul has been laying his case with facts in front of them. Paul has even used a little bit of sarcasm sprinkled in to show them how foolish they are. And in our 140 characters or less communication style of a society, that sounds like a pretty good argument. We can leave it at that, right? Hit him with the facts, hit him with the snark, and then walk out the door. This isn't what Paul does. In fact, we see Paul's next movement is to turn towards pleading for their very souls. And just as a quick aside, I feel it's worth mentioning for us that while truth absolutely matters, there is objective truth and is it important that we know it and that we speak it and that we live it. And while even sarcasm can be redeemed by the Lord, without an affection and a general care for those we are speaking with, those who we are pleading with, um, oftentimes these words fall on deaf ears. So let's read this text. In verses 14 and 15, we see Paul's appeal to this people and his plea for them. He says, here for a third time I am coming, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So here we see Paul addressing these two kind of common accusations that have been leveled against him. We noticed this earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that there was some confusion. At one point, the Corinthians thought Paul was going to be coming to them, and Paul refrained from traveling there, and this was turned against him as some sign that he was wishy-washy, that he was too afraid to show up and actually speak in person to this people, that his affections were not really there for them. He could care less. And here we see Paul addresses that. He says, I have every intention, and I will be coming to you a third time. Paul reveals to them his plans to travel and see them. And we also see this re re repetition of this theme. We saw it earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians. We've seen it twice already. This, this idea that for some reason the fact that Paul has gained no money from them has somehow made him some kind of fraud. It somehow invalidated him in their midst. And Paul actually takes this argument and he turns it back on these apostles who are trying to discredit him. And he says, 
Quite the contrary, friends. The fact that I have not taken any money from you has no mark on my affection for you. In fact, when you look at these super apostles, I can measure how much they care about you. Just count how much money is in your bank account, because as soon as that money is gone, so will they be. These peddlers of the false gospel are here to receive your paychecks, and as soon as the money dries up, they'll be gone. But this is not so with me. I have no intention to lay my hands on your money in the same way that a parent is responsible for bearing the burden of their child, so it is with me. And friends, as, as we look at that imagery, I want to pause for a second and think, it sounds like a little bit of a harsh comment, right? Paul's calling these brothers and sisters his children, his little kids. But notice the affection and the nurturing here. Paul's saying, I have no desire to gain from you. What I desire is for you to be found whole in Christ. So if you will keep your money in your pockets, my desire is that you would be kept by Christ till the end. And as a father of a one-year-old and a three-year-old, this imagery is pertinent as I consider, uh, as I have my young son Jude crying out to me, although I will admit there's selfishness in my heart, never once have I went up to Jude whenever he's cried out and said, son, I'll change your diaper this time, but next time I'm charging you $5 for it. At no point for my daughter Nora, when she asked if I'll make her cheesy eggs and pancakes on a Saturday morning for breakfast, have I said, that sounds like a plan, but you're responsible for covering lunch today. See, when Paul is calling these his spiritual children, in the same way it wouldn't be an insult for me to say that in this season of life I need to wipe Jude's bottom, right? By God's grace, there may come a day where he does that himself. And I pray that does happen. But what we see in this moment is there's an end goal in this process, right? There's this bending towards maturity that never happens if, if as their parents, I don't bear the responsibility and the burden now. And Paul says, I am more than willing to do this for you, Corinthians. You spiritual babes and spiritual infants, I am more than happy to bear your burdens upon my back and take nothing from you if it means that you will move towards spiritual maturity, and friends, this is a beautiful display of the gospel as we consider men and women walking side by side with each other, pointing each other towards Christ and bearing each other's burdens along the way. And if I can be honest with you, I fear that our culture points us in the totally opposite direction. It's impossible for me to summarize this idea in uh, one small little clip. But if you were to go on to social media today, I feel like the sentiment would be something like this. Stay away from toxic people. Get rid of anyone in your life who doesn't make you happy. If someone is a burden to you, then they aren't worthy to be in your life. Surround yourself with people who unflinchingly support you in everything that you say, do, and believe. See, this is the idea of our culture. I would say that if someone's not willing to go a mile extra for you, then you shouldn't be willing to walk a mile for them. And friends, my fear in this mentality is, is not only are we not conformed to Scripture, but we deny ourselves the ability to both bless and be blessed. In the same way that Paul is willing to deny himself for a season and see his own interests put aback for a while so that these brothers and sisters would grow in maturity, 
Friends, I pray that we have the same posture in our midst, Emmaus. That we would not look at other people's struggles as an inconvenience to our schedule and our time card. That we would not see another's difficulties as something that would be ruining our chance to do true work for Christ, but that we would see this as an opportunity to be a blessing and also to be blessed as we comfort those with the comfort that Christ has given to us. And friends, I do think it's pertinent enough that it it is fair to mention there is room for nuance in a discussion. There are times whenever relationships become dangerous, There are times when affiliations with others require boundaries. In fact, your pastors have counseled some to seek out those boundaries at times. So don't hear me say that. But what my fear is that in our heart and our sinfulness, we would find ourselves closing ourselves off to any opportunity to bear the burdens of those around us. And friends, in doing so, we miss an immense opportunity. For you see, Paul had a toxic person in his life. It was the Corinthian church, to be certain. Even though Paul had offered them love and genuine care and affirmation, their response to him was to reject this, to take his actions and twist them to be somehow wrongly motivated and to continually reject his pleas to them. And notice Paul's posture in this is not to wash his hands of these people and say, it's time to cut ties, you're not worth my time. But rather, Paul's posture is to press in further and to go after these people. And may it be so with us, Emmaus. My wife and I are pretty big fans of a show that chronicles the life of the young British Queen Victoria during her reign in the 1800s. And I was struck as we watched an episode the other day in which it chronicled uh, a historical event known as the cholera outbreak on Broad Street in 1854. So this show is largely fictional, but it also has some... uh, actual historical events, and this was one of them. And uh, I was particularly gripped as I watched this episode as it gave face and imagery to what a plague looks like. For you see, cholera, while largely treatable now, was a disease at the time that could very quickly spread through an area and kill people off. And this show did a great job of capturing the tension and the fear, the confusion of the people of London during this time. And I couldn't help but think of one of my personal heroes, Charles Spurgeon, who was just beginning his second pastorate, his first year in the city of London at New Park Street Chapel. And during this time, many of Spurgeon's own parishioners found themselves inflicted by this disease. And the conventional view of medicine said that this was likely an airborne sickness. So even the very prospect of walking into a room would certainly mean almost instant death for those who contracted it. Well, later they did find out that this was water passed. At the time, those fears were real. And for many people, wisely as we would probably say, shrewdly and pertinently, they chose to lay low and see what would happen and wait this thing out. But Spurgeon couldn't bear himself to do that as he watched his people suffer. And uh, I want to read this quote from him on the instant. He said this, All day long, and sometimes all night long, I went about from house to house and saw men and women dying, and oh, how glad they were to see my face. When many were afraid to enter their houses lest they should catch the deadly disease, 
We who had no fear about such things found ourselves most gladly listened to when he spoke of Christ and things divine. Friends, here we see in this beautiful picture in the life of Spurgeon, a man who is willing to be spent and to spend on behalf of these people, willing to even risk his own life so that the gospel may be made known in their midst. And most historians would agree to a certain level that it was this event that in many ways catalyzed Spurgeon's ministry in London. These brothers and sisters who had been left for dead and cast off to the side who Spurgeon willingly risked his life to go see and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to, bought Spurgeon an ear for anyone who was willing to listen. And so, friends, when I ask you and implore you to be willing to risk yourself, spend yourself, inconvenience yourself on behalf of others, I do so asking you to consider the eternal reward that, that is present. This might look differently for us. Perhaps it's not going face-to-face with a deadly disease and wondering if we'll walk outside. Perhaps maybe it's risking losing a close friendship by addressing sin that you see in the life of that person. And yet for us, whenever we're willing to take on the burden of those who are in need, we have the distinct ability to display Christ in their midst. For you see, when Christ came, he did not come to save the righteous, but it was for the unrighteous. See, Christ did not come and find a group of people who had found a way to clean themselves up and make them look good and appealing that he might start a church to try to move through, but he found those who were dead in their sin, unable to ever have any hope of cleaning themselves up, and it was for those of us that Christ has died. And Paul is reaching out to this church and he's saying, you've seen my life. These are not empty words. I have suffered much so that the gospel would be in your midst. And Paul asked them this pertinent question. He says, I'm about to come to you, Corinthian church, and my affections for you have been made clear. My desire for you is not that I would grow rich from you, but that you would be found in Christ. And this is my desire for you today. So I ask you this question. Am I to be loved less since I love you more? If my love for you is great, will you respond by loving me less? See, this is the question the Corinthians must grapple with as they await Paul's coming to them. This is a question we all must grasp. So let's consider, as Paul continues his argument here in verse 16 and 19. He says, But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So here we see again Paul coming back around to address some of these critiques that have been leveled against him. They said, okay, you're right, Paul. Your actions have been pretty good in our midst, but there's a hidden agenda here somewhere, and we know it. You're doing something. You're trying to leverage it so that you can take advantage of us. And Paul just asked them bluntly. He said, at what point has this been the case? 
Was it when I came to you? I know I sent Titus to you. Did he do something wrong? Please let me know so that I might address it. The clear answer to this is no, though, right? They've not been wronged by Paul or Titus or any of the brothers. The issue at hand now has come to this fact. They have to ask themselves, do they want to continue living in their sin? Or will they be restored to Paul and restored to the gospel? And Paul makes this clear in verse 19. He says, do you think I'm doing this just to defend myself? You think I'm looking for a group of people to admire me? He said, none of my actions have been for these purposes. I've come to you, and I've spoken in every way imaginable. I've lifted you up and encouraged you, Corinthians, in your faithfulness. I have scolded you harshly for your grotesque sins. And I've even engaged in this utter foolishness of boasting in myself. And none of this was to try to build myself up, but it was that I might urge you to come back to Christ. This is Paul's plea before them. And so we see with the scene laid, Paul is ready to come to the Corinthians. He's asked them, will he be met with love and restoration, or will he yet again be rejected? And we see Paul comes with a warning. Verses 20 and 21. He says this, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality that they have practiced. You guys recall from earlier in this letter, Paul, his last visit to the Corinthian church didn't go so well. In fact, it went rather poorly. Paul had gone to this church to confront some of their sins, hopefully encourage them to walk in righteousness. And it ends with people, a person slandering Paul, making these false accusations. And instead of stepping up and defending the gospel and defending Paul, everyone kind of sat on their hands quietly and allowed this to take place. So Paul sent what he called a tearful letter. And then Paul has refrained. He's wanted to go back to the city, but he's been patiently waiting because he doesn't want to come and strong-arm this city into obedience, but he wants the effect of the Holy Spirit to allow for repentance to be present. And Paul warns him. He says, the time's come. I am coming to see you, church. But here's my fear. I fear, despite all that has been said, I fear that in spite of the fact that my intentions for you have been made clear, that when I come to you, I'm going to find the same sin that was prevalent the last time I was there. I fear that we're about to have another painful meeting yet again. For you see, Paul had been exposed to their quarreling, their jealousy, their anger. It had been on full display in his last visit. And Paul says, I fear this is what I'm about to walk in on yet again, unless you repent. But notice Paul's words here. He says, not only do I fear that I am to find you not as I wish, he said, let me make this clear. I'm afraid for your sake that you're going to find me not as you wish either. What does Paul mean by that? He's going to be more explicit in this next week as we conclude the book, but Paul has no intention of a repeat of the last time he was in Corinth. In fact, we see Paul has every intention 
There's kind of this rumor going around that Paul's a big talker. He can write a pretty stern letter, send a pretty stern text, but when he gets in person with you, he's the softy. He's not going to do anything about it. But Paul says this is quite the contrary. He said, in my coming, there will be a resolution to this unrepented sin. Whether that be to God's glory, you repenting and turning back, or whether that looks like you being cast from the church. And we see Paul takes this a step further in verse 21. He says, not only do I fear that I will see these sins, but I'm afraid that God is about to humiliate me in your midst. And I'll be forced to mourn the fact that some of these egregious sins that were present the last time that we discussed are still going to be present today. And friends, I want to take a moment to just point towards the interconnectedness of sin as we see Paul has seen evidences of them slandering and quarreling, the deceitfulness that is present among them, and and he warns them very bluntly. He says, in light of this, I'm afraid that when I get there, I'm going to find even more sins to uncover. And friends, this does serve as a healthy reminder to us all that Sin is not some isolated thing that we can kind of keep in a little vacuum or keep in a purse and just hold with us. It's not as though I can take my favorite sin, put it away, go about life, and then come back a little bit later, grab it again. That's not how it works, right? Sin is something that could start small, but it's a cancer that grows throughout our life, small compromise after small compromise, Unfaithfulness in one area spews into unfaithfulness in this area. I know of very few brothers in Christ who have been walking closely in community, faithfully pursuing discipline with other brothers, confessing their sins and fighting and killing sin, only to one day wake up and say, I'm bored with this and it's annoying, so I'm going to leave my wife and kids and go run off with a random woman and ruin my life. That's seldom the way it works, right? And so in this moment, Paul is warning them, this unchecked sin in your life, I'm afraid I'm about to see that it's grown and grown and grown. And as we conclude on this passage, I do want to point to Paul's response to this, though. I think it's very pertinent for us as we look and we see that Paul's response to this is not, Corinthians, you've made my life miserable for the greater part of my ministry, so I'm good either way. If you say you're done, I'm even more done. If you say I'm coming back, okay. This is not Paul's attitude. Paul is not indifferent to this. This is not a reality that he simply take it or leave it. But we see Paul cares deeply. Notice his words here. He says, I'm afraid I'm about to be humiliated when I show up to Corinth and this sin still persists in your midst. Why is this humiliation for Paul? He's not the one who's living in unrepentant sin. But you see, brother, this heart that Paul has, and you see, sister, this affection that Paul has for this people. He's made it his life's mission. Christ has called him out and said, you will suffer much on behalf of my name. And Paul has made it his mission that he would take the gospel across the known world. And Paul, at great cost to himself, has proclaimed Christ in city after city and town after town, and he has endured much hardship and pain along the way, but he's also seen much beauty and fruit as lives of men and women have been changed. And earlier in this letter, we see how Paul points to the Corinthian church. He says, I don't have to bring my letter of recommendation to you. 
because you are that letter, church. You are the men and women who were once living in your lust and your sexual immorality, your drunkenness and your rebellion, and yet Christ washed you clean and has made you a new creation. See, this is Paul's boast in his letter of recommendation in this people, and Paul fears that he's about to have to walk into this church, and the same people who he once found joy in the fact that he saw this transformation and this fruit, he's afraid he's about to walk into this church and have to tell them, Depart from us because you're not of us. And Paul bears no joy in this. And so, friends, he leaves them on this note with this plea. Next week we'll see as he clarifies this even greater. But with this plan to come to them, and he begs them that when he arrives that they might find him pleasing and that they might accept the gospel. In light of this, I want to... Uh, rather quickly offer three pastoral charges and then we'll pray. The first one is this. I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, to persevere in loving those who offer burden to you. Persevere in loving those who are spiritually immature. Persevere in loving those who cause you strife. Perhaps today, I would assume that every one of us finds ourselves in that position. Maybe this is not in a bad way whatsoever, but in a glorious way. But maybe this is apparent. You find yourself constantly being humbled as you seek to point your kids towards Christ. You find yourself constantly having to repent of sin. And like Paul, repeatedly repeat your intentions and your actions and justify why you're doing what you're doing. And I would just call you, church, to repent to continue in faithfulness in that. Persevere. Perhaps maybe today there's a friend, maybe it's a son or even a spouse that you're longing to see come to Christ. Persevere in that today, church. Continue. Do not see them as the burden. Maybe no doubt they've caused you emotional pain and many sleepless nights to know that someone you love so dearly is walking towards their destruction, but I would pray for you not to cut ties because it's easier to not feel things, but I would ask you to feel it. And it's no light thing, but embrace that and go after them. The second charge I would offer you to church is to mourn for the wayward. Perhaps this is just my propensity and I'm offering this up and no one else struggles with it, so if that's the case, I apologize. But I find myself oftentimes pulled into kind of these teams where everyone who's not on my team has become the enemy. And I think increasingly we're able to polarize people in a way where we see ourselves as the good guys and we see other people as the bad guys. And hear me, this isn't me trying to eliminate objective truth. There is right or wrong. But I would ask you not to become so entrenched in this idea that when you see someone on the other side falling away, when you see someone on the other side walking into destruction, that you would somehow find yourself glib about it or even excited about it or even have a side little chuckle that's like, well, they believe that. That's the obvious consequences of their beliefs, so serves them right. I would charge you like Paul to have a morning as you see others walking towards their destruction. And may that motivate us to proclaim Christ. And my last charge today is for the non-believer. I ask you the same question that Paul asked the Corinthians when he said, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? On behalf of Jesus Christ, I ask you, if Christ loves you more, are you to love him less? For you see, Paul 
beautifully has incarnated the gospel in the midst of these Corinthian people. He went to them at great cost to himself and proclaimed reconciliation to God. And as a result, this Corinthian people have pushed him away and they've sidestepped him and they've accused him of being unfair and unfaithful and even trying to use them. And Paul, rather than running away and cutting his hands and washing his hands from this, has continued to pursue after this church. And friends, in an even better way, in an even more glorious way, this is what Christ has done for us. Where you see Christ at great cost to himself, has stepped down. He stepped into earth. He died on the cross, and he bore the punishment for your sin. And friends, if you call out to him today, you have this assurance that for those who call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And I ask you, if you find yourself like the Corinthians today, you're kind of sitting there patiently thinking, he's never going to come. Paul's not going to come do anything. Perhaps here today you say, if Christ was really hated evil, he would have already come and done something about it. But let me assure you, friends, don't mistake Christ's perseverance and his patience as being weakness. Christ is patiently delaying his return until he has brought every single one of his sheep into his fold. And there will come a day where Christ comes back to punish sin. And so I ask you today, if you hear the voice of Christ, do not wait. Call out to him that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank, thank you so much for Lord, this body of believers that you have called forward, Lord, that you have redeemed and purchased for yourself this people throughout time and space. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the distinct joy of being a part of this body, Lord. And I, I pray that you would be with this group of people as they endeavor to live uh, in light of the gospel. I pray that you would give us Lord, just an ownership and bearing each other's burdens, Lord, that you would give us a joy at the grace that comes our way when we have the opportunity to display your patience and kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we wait on them, Lord, and as we bear their burdens so that we might see them grow into spiritual maturity. Lord, I pray that you would give us perseverance in doing that, Lord. Lord, I pray just as the Corinthian church was left with this, this question, will you love me any less, Lord, I pray that for any in this room right now who have yet to answer that question, Lord. I pray that you would call them today. I pray that they would cry out to the name of Jesus and be reconciled to you. Lord, we love you. I pray that you would just send us forward into this week as your ambassadors that we might proclaim Christ crucified. It's your name I pray, amen. Every week uh, here at Emmaus, we conclude the same way, and uh, it's a pertinent way and a good way as we've been singing the gospel. We've heard the gospel proclaimed. Now it's our chance as a people to respond by declaring the gospel ourselves. And we know that's what we do whenever we are taking place in communion. We are declaring the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we take the bread representing his body and we take the juice representing his blood. And I would just charge you, Emmaus, as you are declaring this in this moment, may this motivate us to continue this declaration as we go out into the world around us that we would continue to declare Christ crucified uh, if you're here today and you're not a believer, we would ask you to stay in your seat. I know that's hard to ask you to ignore social cues and stay in your spot uh, while other people are getting up, but what you are doing in this symbolization is you are declaring Christ crucified on behalf of you, and uh, if you have not yet come to find that reality, then it would just be uh, a worthless activity. So rather, we ask that you cry out to Christ.
and you would cry out that he would save you. So uh, if you guys will, come to uh, the row on the side here. Come across. If anyone is in need of a gluten-free option, we do have some at the far table. Emmaus, love you guys. Come forward. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.